The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio. It's time now for the Doctor's Lounge Show with Dr. Scott Barber. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on America's Web Radio. want to say hello to everybody. I've been gone for a while since the holidays came about. The new year has been incredibly busy for me, and we're off to another great year. And today, we're going to talk about independent thinking on this show. The world is descending into madness uh, more and more. And when we started uh, this show uh, in the beginning... The whole concept was an advocacy show for the virtues of free market healthcare and to warn our audience about the dangers of, of socialized medicine, of a one size fits all top down government run healthcare system. And I've been arguing for free market medicine my entire career. I've been practicing now. This is my 21st year of practice. I've been in healthcare for 30 years and I've seen the underbelly of the beast in medical school. I've done lots of work inside science, working at the National Institute of Health, working at the Lombardi Cancer Institute in Washington, D.C. I've been in academia, in, in college at the uh, UC Berkeley system. The, the, I was at UCLA. I've been in, inside of medical uh, schooling, uh, in medical school, I've seen the inside of that, these board agencies and the type of people that are there. I've run businesses and have seen how uh, business works, the uh, lending system, the banking system, all of these different things. And in my life, I've I've seen a lot and I've kind of come to the understanding that if we don't maintain control of our own lives, that people that we cede control to are going to lead us down a primrose path under the guise that they're looking out for us when in reality they aren't. The only person who can look out for you and your family is yourself, and you need to be empowered to be able to do that. And nowhere is it more important than in managing your own health care. And so what I try to do is point out examples on this show of why socialized medicine is a failure and why free market medicine is the way to go. Now, we've been living in a world, we've, we just came out of a COVID pandemic where we discussed on this show a whole lot of situations. We were told one thing uh, one day and then another thing another day. And then as more and more information comes out, what we were told was misinformation turns out to be actual information and what we were told was information ultimately turns out to be misinformation we've seen agencies that were once trusted like the fda the cdc the world health organization not by me i learned that these agencies were fallible and corrupted just like every other human being on the planet is many years ago, but I think the proof has come out in the last couple of years as we've seen them tell us that the uh, COVID virus did not come from the Wuhan lab in China, it was not from China, that it was not uh, communicable from human to human, and we find out that it is. Uh, we've seen all kinds of pivoting on the efficacy of masks, 
Uh, the vaccines we were once told were 100% effective. We've played you the clips on this show many times. And now we're told that the vaccines can't prevent transmission. And despite these facts that are put out by these agencies, uh, they're still seem to be ignoring them and and there's always this push to mandate uh uh vaccination with the uh new experimental vaccines which more evidence is is surfacing that there are issues particularly myocarditis uh there's uh issues around uh, the vaccine and its effect on pregnancy the fact that these spike proteins are showing up in women's breast milk. Uh, we just uh, saw uh, a, a professional football player in the Bills game uh, pass out on live TV. Now we're being told that this is uh, related to uh, other uh, cardiac issues. I would tell you that the people that are telling me what's going on there are not to be trusted. And I would, you know, I don't know what happened to this football player, but what I do know is that I have been watching football starting with my father since the 1960s, and I've never seen that in my life. And now we see it um, all over the place. And anytime anybody tries to ask questions about it, we get shouted down, we get accused of spreading misinformation, we get threatened. And I'm, I'm just wondering, why is it that in my lifetime we have lost the ability to ask questions? We've lost the ability to to engage in independent thinking and and to to just ask questions. I mean, things come up in our lives where I, I have a question. You know, this football player went down, and I'm wondering if it's related to the vaccine. Now there is. Peer-reviewed published data in the American uh, Journal um, um, in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, on vaccine-associated myocarditis. I mean, that is just a fact. That's not me saying that. That's the people who are telling me I can't talk saying that. And I'm just saying, is this unusual event that we saw with this football player from the Buffalo Bills collapsing? And now they're trying to say uh, it's related to... Uh, um, <clears throat> what they call commotio cardis, where uh, you get a, a a serious blow to the heart, and it causes the heart to go into an arrhythmia. And uh, we commonly, when we're, we're in medical school, the the way they teach us about this particular issue is always in the context of a little league uh, baseball player getting hit in the chest with a baseball that gets hit back at them. That's kind of the the one we're always told that that it occurs in, and the the concept is that the ball hits you uh, right as your heart is uh, going through an electrical stimulation and a contraction, and it sends the heart into an arrhythmia. And uh, typically, we have to use a um, uh, you know an AED, these electrocardio devices that shock the heart back into its normal rhythm, and that usually happens quite quickly. And we saw. Uh, in the Buffalo Bills instance, this player was down, I think it was for nine minutes and, uh, didn't seem to be responding to the AED initially. Now, I don't know a hundred percent about these facts because they won't share them. Uh, they simply just tell us nothing to see here and move on. And maybe there is nothing to see here. I don't know, but I have questions about that and a whole bunch of other things. And I kind of want to share with you a little bit about my personal experience because 
I still believe that even with this world where we're having increasing censorship, uh, we're trying to shut people down from talking about subjects that people in power don't want us to discuss. I still feel like I'm allowed to share my own personal experiences without risking my medical license or risking uh, my job or, or things like that. And I want to kind of share with you my observations of things that have happened in this world uh, that I think are relevant and help shine light on the way things are playing out today. Um, one of the things that I've noticed going on on this planet for the last few years and really has been in hyperspeed in the last two years are these concepts of best practices, misinformation, experts. Uh, you know, you have to have credentials. We recently saw uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson being asked what a woman was. I think it was Marsha Blackburn during her Senate confirmation hearing. And she says, well, I'm not a biologist, so I can't make this same. I mean, this idea that if you don't have a degree in something, you're not allowed to have a, an opinion on it or ask questions or even know about it. I mean, I'm kind of a biologist. I'm a doctor. I know what a woman is, but I knew what that was when I was in middle school, too. It's just I'm not allowed to say it anymore. And people also use it as a way of avoiding answering questions. Also, this concept of misinformation is very confusing to me in the sense that we see over and over again, you say one thing, somebody comes out in a, in a position of authority and they say that is misinformation, but then it turns out to be true uh, down the road and then they just move on as if nothing happened and then they try and tell you you can't say the next thing because that's misinformation too. And I'm always asking the question, who's the arbiter of actual information? You know, I mean, and I'm going to show you how there is no arbiter of actual information. And one of the most important things that I've learned in my lifetime is I've gotten to this stage in my life. I see no authority to decision making over my family and myself to anybody. I'll use people that I think have education, that I think have knowledge in a particular area to advise me. But the ultimate decision is mine. And once we lose that, we've lost everything. And it seems to me that these concepts of misinformation, best practices, the idea of experts, we have experts who've made a decision, is a way of taking power over your own life away from you and ceding it to other people. And I'm here to expose what's going on, help you see the playing field so that you can maintain your ability to engage in independent thinking. Now... <clears throat> Uh, we said that uh, the masks were ineffective uh, on this show, and, and that was not my opinion. That was based on 30 years of study. I've studied masks my whole career, and you know we knew that these paper and cloth masks were not effective at uh, presenting, preventing the transmission of uh, respiratory-type illnesses. They're still not. They never have been. Now, that was a couple years ago, misinformation, and you were deplatformed and censored and risked losing your medical license for saying it. But now it's come out. They've done studies uh, in the last uh, two years that confirm what we've known from the decades before that they don't work. And so I'm, I'm asking myself, well, you told me it was misinformation a year or two ago, but now I'm allowed to say it, I think. I'm not even 100% sure I'm allowed to say it, but... Uh, it, it seems to me that uh, I've been documenting uh, from the uh, CDC 
when you can and can't say it. And I think I'm in a zone right now where you, you can't admit that the masks are ineffective at preventing the, the cloth and the paper masks are ineffective at preventing transmission of uh, these respiratory illnesses. And, you know, I remember during the pandemic, uh, people would say, well, you wear the mask in the operating room. I mean, what's wrong with you? Why? How could you possibly say the mask don't work? And they say, why do I wear it in the operating room? Well, I can tell you when I'm in the operating room and I'm wearing a mask, it has nothing to do with the transmission of viral disease. Uh, it's more about spitting in the wound and also getting contents of the wound up in your face. And moreover, I'm not aware of any studies that suggest that the infection rate in surgery is uh, decreased by wearing masks. Uh, they've looked at it and they have not shown a correlation with it. The things that typically affect infection rates in surgery uh, tend to have to do with where you're operating. So the level of vascularity of the tissue. So places that have poor vascular supply tend to go on to infection more often than areas of, of, uh, of vascularity. So when you're operating on an area of the body that's very vascular, those tend not to get infected. So hips, uh, you start working on the ankle, the vascular supply is, is much more tenuous and much more limited. And so you tend to see infections more in that area. Also, we know it's the length of time and the size of the wounds. So anything over two hours tends to have an increase in infection rate. Uh, bigger wounds tend to have a higher infection rate, smaller wounds much less. So short operations with small wounds almost never go on to infection. Bigger wounds with uh, longer operating times greater than two hours are more likely to go on. Uh, we also know perioperative antibiotics plays a role. So that's very important um, to give antibiotics around the time of making the incision, either somewhere between 30 minutes before your incision and 30 minutes after the incision. That has been shown to decrease the infection rate. And then fun, uh, hilariously enough, or I guess maybe hilarious, not the right word, but oddly enough, uh, the number of people in the room has relevance there. So uh, we wear masks and people ask me, well, why do we wear our masks? And my argument would be, well, it's tradition. I mean, they started wearing masks long ago and you know, generation after generation trains the surgeons behind them. And I don't think there's any great appetite to eliminate the mass. I don't think anybody goes into surgery with a crusade of, I want to get rid of these masks. I mean, I kind of like having the mask on my face because I don't like stuff splattering up there. But um, this uh, idea of misinformation is... Uh, when you hear the word misinformation, your antenna need to go up that somebody is trying to censor your speech and modify your thinking by telling you that uh, you're entering into an area that elites, that people in power, people in control don't you want, want you to talk about. Another thing is this concept of best practices. Uh, this kind of came about uh, a little more right after I started my training. So when I went to medical school, I was taught about independent thinking. I was trained to always read the data myself, to always examine the patient myself. Don't take any anybody else's examination uh, at face value. Uh, if one doctor saw a patient and they tell me, "Hey, I checked this patient out, and you know this and that is fine," you don't need to look at it. I was trained, no, you go and you do your own exam, despite who's telling you that. Um, and then somewhere along the line, we started getting this concept of best practices, which was always curious to me, and I didn't really understand it. It's this idea that when you take care of a patient and, and you process a patient in a certain way, that this uh, this power 
the, I don't, you know, I want to say it's the government in many cases. It's the government of the hospital says when you see a patient, it's got to be step one, step two, step three, step four. Well, that's anathema to the way I was trained. Every patient is an individual. Every patient has unique issues regarding their care and there is no best practices. The other thing about best practices is when somebody's an expert in the field, as I am in orthopedic surgery, I'm on the front lines dealing with patients every single day uh, for 30 years now. And I have learned things from the practice of medicine, talking to my colleagues that are not going to show up in textbooks for a long time because I'm actually practicing medicine. And the amount of time that it takes to get the the practices that we're engaged in this is why we call it the art of medicine, right? There are certain things that are just the art of medicine that I just know from practice that are different from patient to patient. And uh, that's why you don't ever want to have a bureaucracy uh, coming down and telling you this is going to be the way it is. And I'm going to just say, you know, we've played on this show many times, all of the experts from the CDC and the FDA and uh, politicians telling us that if you take the vaccine, you can't get the virus. Uh, I remember Rachel Maddow on, I don't even know what she's on, MSNBC or something like that. Why she has a show is is amazing to me. But she says unequivocally, you get the vaccine, it stops. It doesn't go on. And that turned out not to be true. But yet, you know, today she's on to her next thing of telling us what to do. And at the time, I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm a doctor and I've been doing this for 30 years. And that's not how I understand vaccines, particularly vaccines uh, associated with respiratory illness. They've never just stopped transmission dead in their tracks ever. And so I'm skeptical that this new one is going to. And sure enough, it turns out that it doesn't. We've played uh, uh, the CDC director Walensky uh, telling us that what what the vaccines can no longer do is prevent transmission. Well, that's crazy because it was not that long ago. You said it was 100% effective, and now you're saying it can't do it. But what hasn't changed is you have to get vaccinated. And that, to me, is crazy. And it's also an indictment of this concept of best practice. It's also an indictment of experts. If there's one thing I can tell you over the course of my life is that Experts do not get to be experts just because they deem themselves experts or because they have a certain level of education or because they happen to maintain a certain position of power. They're human beings just like the rest of us. They're fallible, and I've seen it over and over again where people in positions of power have given me bad information. And I can tell you, when I was trying to get into med school many, many years ago, I went to the University of Hawaii and I got a meeting with the uh, head guy there. I can't remember what his name was. I can't even remember what his title was. But I I went in and I asked him about becoming a doctor and he sort of looked at me, looked at my history. And to be fair, my history wasn't great at that time, but he looked across the table at me and he just said, you simply don't have what it takes to become a doctor. And uh, I find that ironic uh, because turned out to be a pretty good one and a pretty successful one. And had I listened to this so-called expert, uh, I wouldn't be sitting here before you guys today. Now, the other thing is this idea of credentials. Uh, we see credentials uh, as a lever to give people authority to just tell you how it's going to be. And I've learned over the years that credentials don't mean anything. And I've had issues with, with bankers. I've had uh, issues with academics that have given me uh, credentials and uh, they 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 turn out to be wrong. You don't 
become infallible just because you have a degree from Harvard or Yale or anywhere else. Um, and there are people that have no education that can offer offer a lot to a particular situation. I always like to share the story. It wasn't that long ago I had a young uh, person from Slovakia. He's a fantastic doctor. He's now doing his residency in orthopedic surgery in Slovakia, and he was working with me at the time as a medical student. And I was doing a knee arthroscopy, a, a surgery on a knee, and I was struggling to get into the uh, what we call the medial compartment. This particular patient had an issue with a meniscus, and every now and then somebody's got a really tight knee, and it's difficult to get the camera and the tools in there to deal with the torn meniscal cartilage. And and uh, he looks at me and he says, you know, if you take a needle and you stab the medial collateral ligament multiple times on the inside, it'll cause the knee to open up just a little bit, just a millimeter or two more, and allow you to get in there. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I'm one of the most highly trained sports medicine doctors around. I've been to all the best places, taught by all the best people, and I've been practicing for a really long time, and I'd never heard that. But because I was aware that you can learn something from anybody, I made an assessment uh, first, uh, am I going to do any harm? So taking a needle in the operating room and stabbing the medial collateral ligament several times is not going to cause any harm to the patient. And sure enough, I stabbed the, the medial collateral ligament a couple times with a knee or with a needle and the knee opened up just a little bit and I was able to easily complete the operation that I was, uh, that I set out to do. And I took that moment to share with all the other students in the room the concept of Keep an open mind, no matter how skilled you are, no matter how well-trained you are, no matter what position or title you have, you can always learn things from from just about anybody. So keep an open mind and always be thirsty to learn uh, because you never know where that's going to come from. And it seems to me we have a lot of people today that say, you know, I am a biologist, therefore I get to comment on biology and you can't say anything against me. Now, when I was a young kid growing up, I can remember being fear-mongered uh, for all kinds of things. Uh, I remember when it was going to be the coming ice age. That was on the cover of Time magazine and back in the 70s, the coming ice age. And the ice age never came. And then we kind of got into the 80s and it was global warming is going to destroy everything. And that kind of hasn't happened, although they talk about global warming uh, ever since. I mean, they still talk about it, even though we're not really seeing uh, global warming. And then because the people that were trying to fearmonger with us about the coming ice age and global warming didn't work out, they decided to change it to climate change, which just on the face of it is laughable to me. It's kind of like, so you're telling me anything that happens is due to climate change like you're predicting, and the only thing I need to save myself is to give you all my freedom and all my money, and you'll protect me. It's ridiculous. Uh, we talked about the hole in the ozone. I remember that was a big deal. In fact, to this day, I don't use aerosol sprays because I was at an age when I the fear-mongering worked very well against me, and these aerosol cans were destroying the ozone layer, and it scared me because I didn't want the ozone to go away, whatever that is. Uh, and I was terrified, and so I stopped doing it, and it just goes to demonstrate uh, how this fear-mongering works to control our behaviors. And it took me a while. It took me decades to sort of understand, oh, that's the point. The fear-mongering is a method of controlling us and getting us to cede power to authorities uh, to, to make decisions and, and exhibit power over our lives. And there's no better place to fear-monger, as we just saw, than through your health care. 
Which brings me back to my number one point, which is we should never descend into a one-size-fits-all socialized medicine. We're dangerously close to that. I mean, we pretty much do have that. We need to go back to a free market uh, healthcare system uh, based on capitalism. Yes, capitalism. I know people hate that concept, but the beauty about capitalism is it's a voluntary contract entered into uh, by two people, at least two people. And uh, the agreements that are made are good for the buyer and they're good for the seller. And that's why it works. And capitalism is a practice that has raised more people out of pro- uh, poverty and done more to improve the standard of living around the world than any other uh, uh, policy. And it's why uh, the United States became the richest, most powerful, most prosperous country on the planet. It's why people from all over the world still make their way here, although the country is in dangerous, is getting dangerously close uh, to falling, uh, falling on bad times. And that's why I'm taking time to do this podcast is to share with you what I've learned about healthcare so that you guys can make decisions in your lives that will uh, hopefully move us back towards a more free market model. Now, when I was a kid, one of the other fear-mongery things I always heard was, and I don't remember what the year was, but I read something. I was in grade school, and they said the Amazon forests are being cut down at the rate of a football field a second. And by some year in the future, I can't remember if it was 1990 or the year 2000. I always think it was the year 2000 because before 2000, like the year 2000 seemed like this far-off time, and uh, it was the fear-mongering people kind of use that as like the future and and it worked. I mean, I was terrified. Oh my God, the Amazon forests are going to be gone by the year 2000. I'm not 100% sure that's what it said, but it was a football field a second. I remember that. And here we are, um, you know, 2022 and the Amazon forest is still there. Now, <clears throat> Al Gore, who used to be uh, vice president uh, for Clinton, he ran for president and uh, lost uh, to to George W. Bush. And he then went on to this uh, global warming crusade uh, for which he's uh, still involved in. And long ago, many years, many, many years ago, he came out with a movie called An Inconvenient Truth. And uh, he talked about how climate change was destroying the planet and that by the year 2000, New York was going to be underwater and the polar ice caps were going to melt and the polar bears were going to be extinct. In fact, the uh, polar bear used to be the icon for uh, climate change. Now, they are trying to get away from that because polar bears are doing uh, really well right now. And I have this article that I got from... um, Let's see. This is the it's called the myth that the polar bear population is declining and this is an FEE story it was from September 9th 2019 and they have a little chart in here where they uh look at the population of polar bears in the 1950s was about 5000 from 1965 to 1970, it was 8,000 to 10,000. Now, mind you, they're always fear-mongering us that polar bears are on their way out. I mean, my whole life, it's been the polar bears are going. And um, in 1984, there were 25,000. In the year 2005, there were somewhere between 20,000 to 25,000. And at 2015, uh, we have between 22,000 and 31,000 polar bears. So 
despite the fact that the fear mongers on climate change keep telling us the polar bears are going to go away, uh, their population keeps increasing. And this source of this, these numbers comes from the New York Times, uh, covebear.com, the International Bear Association, the International Wildlife uh, Association, and the Polar Bear Study Group. So um, the, the other thing I would tell you is I read an article somewhere years ago about the fact that the polar bear had to be removed as the icon for climate change because uh, the polar bear populations just keep increasing. But when I was looking it up to do the show today, uh, what you find on your search engine, and believe me, I don't use Google. I try to use other search engines that are uh, less biased. But of course, every single article on there, I had to look and look. Every single article was climate change is killing the polar bears. Climate change is killing the polar bears. And if I didn't already know that the population of polar bears was increasing, I would have never been able to find this article. And I would have, you know, scanned through 10 pages of a Google search or a, a, any uh, platform or, you know, any uh, search engine. And I would have come away thinking that polar bears were, were, you know, about to be extinct when the fact is they're not. Now, the fear mongering has been there all, all throughout my whole life. Uh, we see it all the time. And I'm guessing that this sort of manipulation of public thought has been going on since the beginning of time. You know, the Druids, uh, were doing it to their populations to keep people in line and things never change. And part of, independent thinking is learning how to assess data for yourself and don't let people fear monger to you. Now I want to play you Al Gore. So he does this movie years ago, an inconvenient truth. He makes all these predictions of doomsday that time comes and goes and none of his predictions come true. And yet Al Gore still here at the forefront, still uh, talking about climate change. And uh, let's hear what he had to say at the economic forum, the World Economic Forum, the other day. And do it every single day. And the accumulated amount is now trapping as much extra heat as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every single day on the Earth. That's what's boiling the oceans, creating these atmospheric rivers and the rain bombs and sucking the moisture out of the land and creating the droughts and melting the ice and raising the sea level and causing these waves of climate refugees predicted to reach one billion in this century. Look at the xenophobia and political authoritarian trends that have come from just a few million refugees. What about a billion? We would lose our capacity for self-governance on this world. We have to act. So in answer to your question, I would say we have to have a sense of urgency much greater than we have yet had and we need have had and we need to make some changes. Okay, there was probably a time in my life that I would be losing my mind right now, freaking out. Oh my God, 600 Hiroshima bombs a day. A billion refugees. I can't even remember all of the hyperbolic statements he was making there. But I'm now at a stage in my life where I've lived enough. I've seen this absolute buffoon, this absolute clown humiliate himself now for uh, forever. And I just have to laugh at the how ridiculous these statements are. And, you know, normally when you evaluate somebody, you try to look at their work history, okay? This kook has been making these claims forever. None of them happen. He's always thought, New York is going to be underwater. And then it's not. You know, Obama is buying uh, beach homes, as are a lot of people that are pushing this climate change narrative. They buy beachfront homes, and it's obvious that they don't believe 
what they're preaching. And these people at the World Economic Forum are very dangerous. They're pushing all sorts of narratives on us. And the climate change thing to me is just unbelievable. You know, I know the comedian Bill Maher has been uh, really coming around a lot on the COVID crisis. He seems to be putting two and two together and he's made a lot of uh, rational observations, I believe, about uh, what uh, things that have been going on with the COVID pandemic regarding what we're hearing, what we're seeing and sort of having uh, an incredulity at the way our experts are telling us one thing, but another thing turns out to be true. For example, if you get the vaccine, it's 100% protective, but then uh, not long after that, it's like, okay, what the vaccines can't do is prevent transmission. I mean, one end of the spectrum to the other, anybody who says anything different at the time they say it is deplatformed. Bill Maher is seeing that. But with the climate change, he doesn't see it. And I just don't get it. I mean, in my lifetime, the ozone's going to go away, but it doesn't. Polar bears are going to go extinct, but they don't. They increase. By the way, he talked about the polar ice caps. They're the polar ice caps are the thickest they've ever been. Okay. Um, they keep giving us this information that if we say the opposite, they will label us as spreading misinformation. They will deplatform us and hurt us in any way possible. And I mean, Al Gore was talking about the fact that they have to use the power of governments around the world to essentially deplatform uh, anybody who goes against their narrative because apparently enough people these days are not seeing, uh, or, you know, not succumbing to this, uh, fear mongering. Um, and, uh, you know, it's affecting their brand. It's affecting their their ability to achieve their goals uh, because people are not buying into it. And when they won't buy into it willingly, then they're going to try and assert authority over us to force us to do it. And one of the ways that they can ins- assert that control is through healthcare. And if we allow the government to take over healthcare, and we we allow them to have a one size fits all top down. Uh, you know, one size fits all, meaning you get one treatment for everybody. That's not how healthcare works, but that's what our system has descended into. Uh, then we're, you know, we're going to lose everything and we need to fight uh, back against this. Now, one of the things that we've been told, um, over the, you know, last several decades is the concept that because CO2, which is, they tell us is this greenhouse gas. Now, to those of us who go to uh, high school biology and we learn that uh, CO2 is what feeds the plants and plants convert that into glucose, you know, and then glucose is what we mammals and, and other beings use, uh, non-plant life uh, use uh, as energy. They've tried to convince us that this CO2 is is lethal, that the CO2 is causing greenhouse gases, meaning that when the sun's rays hit the earth and reflect, uh, the CO2 gases are sort of keeping the heat into the planet and that, and that, that is causing the, the temperature of the planet to warm. Now they don't actually measure data. Whenever they actually measure something, uh, it never supports their, their ideas. It never supports their hypothesis. Uh, but what they do is they like to do modeling, right? They like to put it into a computer. They put their own variables in and it spits something out that by the year 2000, New York's going to be underwater. And it doesn't ever come to fruition. And they yet they keep going to the modeling. We saw this a lot with uh, COVID when the Royal College of London came out with their modeling that said, you know, they, they determined that. Uh, you know, the, in the mortality rate of, uh, the COVID virus was 3.4%. 
And that precipitated the lockdowns, right? That fear market, they're scarce. Oh my God, 3.4% mortality. Next thing you know, we're all agreeing to go into lockdowns. Everybody's wearing a mask. And it's not true. And the global warming people, uh, climate change people, I'm sorry, I had so many years in my life where they told me it was global warming. It's hard for me to convert to their new language of climate change. But um, this this kind of uh, issue uh, has been going on for such a long time. None of what they say ever comes true. And yet we're not allowed to uh, ask questions. And anybody who does is is uh, absolutely uh, deplatformed. And I got another one here, and I'm going to try and play for you. I apologize. I was trying to get this clip um, put together for you guys uh, before the show, and I couldn't get it done. So I'm going to—I have this saved on my uh, Twitter now. I uh, this is uh, information that comes from a climate scientist who has been taking core samples out of the Earth and looking at isotopes in those core samples, and based on the isotopes in these core samples, they're able to demonstrate what the temperature was at that time. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not telling you that I know anything about what he's saying other than he is a scientist and he's asserting something that makes some sense to me. And as an educated person, I was going to say educated man, but I know I'm not allowed to use gender, uh, uh, um, terms anymore. So I just said as an ed- educated person, uh, I know that, that science is not uh, you know, you do one experiment, you find out a piece of information, and it's never to be looked at again. I know that science is a process. It's constantly evolving, and we're constantly looking at it. And this is really important for you guys to hear in the context of the overall narrative that global warming is being caused by these greenhouse gases accumulating. Here's something that's really important to me. So I want you to listen to this guy. Um, all right, here we go. In fact, there was something very important in the ice core data that he failed to mention. Professor Ian Clark is a leading Arctic paleoclimatologist who looks back into the Earth's temperature record tens of millions of years. When we look at uh, climate on long scales, we're looking for geological material that actually records climate. If we're to take an ice sample, for example, we use isotopes to reconstruct temperature, but the atmosphere that's imprisoned in that ice we liberate and then we look at the co2 content professor clark and others have indeed discovered as al gore says a link between carbon dioxide and temperature but what al gore doesn't say is that the link is the wrong way round. so here we're looking at the ice core record from vostok And in the red, we see temperature going up from early time to later time at a very key interval when we came out of a glaciation. And we see the temperature going up. And then we see the CO2 coming up. CO2 lags behind that increase. It's got an 800-year lag. So temperature is leading CO2 by 800 years. There have now been several major ice core surveys. Every one of them shows the same thing. The temperature rises or falls, and then, after a few hundred years, carbon dioxide follows. So obviously, carbon dioxide is not the cause of that warming. In fact, we can say that the warming produced the increase in carbon dioxide. CO2 clearly cannot be causing temperature changes. It's a product of temperature. It's following temperature changes. So... 
what they're saying there is that based on their studies, it appears that temperature isn't a result of the CO2. Their argument is that CO2 is the result of the temperature. Now, I, I haven't done any independent studying of this, I, I, but, it, but I can tell you that I certainly don't trust what's been shoved down my throat for the last 30 or 40 years, only because they tell me something's going to happen in 10 or 20 years, 10 or 20 years goes by, and what they say is going to happen doesn't ever happen, and that I'm also a little bit skeptical because the solution to the problem is always for me to sacrifice all my money and all my freedom which anytime somebody tells me that, uh, you know, my antenna go up is I'm being conned, right? And this is just utterly ridiculous to me. And it's another reason why you need to be wary when you hear uh, people telling you about best practices, about experts say, about we had to censor this person for misinformation, which by the way, the account that I was following um, I forget what his what his handle is, but hopefully he's going to be back. He, of course, was suspended <laughs> from social media. Now, I follow the guy uh, for a while, uh, and I've seen a bunch of his posts, and I find him to be a really excellent follow, but uh, he got memory hold, right? So he's sharing inconvenient truths for the people that are in power, and he got suspended, and this happened to me too. When I was posting an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, one of the top medical journals on planet Earth, on myocarditis, I posted it in 2020 or 20, early 2021, I can't remember, and I was suspended from social media for posting the article. I didn't even put any comment on it. It was a peer-reviewed article in in a prestigious medical journal with no comments, and I got suspended, and they wouldn't bring me back until... I took it down. Now, this should really – the reason I'm sharing this with you people is not to scare anybody and, and not to, to you know get you on the bandwagon of being angry. It's to help you in your journey towards independent thinking, to understand that when you Google an issue, there is a whole world of corrupt science that is trying to get you to believe something. And I know because I go back and I study things that I already know about and I can see – that they're trying to convince me of the opposite. It happened to me when preparing for the show today. I wanted to demonstrate that the polar bear had to be removed as the icon for climate change because the polar bear population is increasing, and yet every single article I see says the opposite. It took me a long time to find the article that gave me the actual data uh, that that tells, shows that the polar bear populations have been increasing since 1950, you know? When you look at the data, the polar ice caps are the thickest they've ever been. But yet they tell you that they're melting and that the oceans are rising. And, you know, the the oceans, the whole premise, right? The polar ice caps are melting due to climate change. The, when the ice caps melt, the oceans rise, and then New York's going to be underwater. Well, none of that has happened. In fact, the opposite has happened. And they tell you, well, that's happening because of what we said anyway. It's just happening in a different way. And just give us all your money and all your freedom, and we'll protect you. I mean, it's utterly ridiculous, but yet it just continues to go on and on and on. And, I, you know, when it comes to healthcare. That's something that, you know, most people don't have a ton of information about and they rely on doctors to uh, give them that information. And the, the powers that be that are organizing our healthcare systems that are sadly moving us more and more towards 
a one-size-fits-all, top-down, government-run healthcare system are trying to eliminate voices like mine by saying that I'm not, you know, I'm not titled. I'm not one of their deemed experts, that I'm spreading misinformation. They don't talk about what it is. It doesn't matter that what I say is 100% correct. They just label it misinformation, and then I'm eliminated. And so as a people, we all have to be aware of that, okay? And we all have to fight against that. And so when you hear your teachers teaching your kids about best practices and about, um, uh, you know, the experts, when you hear uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson being uh, Senate confirmed for the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, being asked what a woman is, and she says, "Well, I'm not a biologist. I can't. Uh, I can't define a woman." I mean, this is a telltale signs that you're being lied to. Um, if you don't allow science to progress freely and openly, and allow people to ask questions and allow people to be wrong, that is part of the scientific method too. Is we put forth a hypothesis and then we test it. And sometimes what we believe to be true turns out not to be true. The people that are trying to postulate that uh, CO2 rising is causing global warming, well, it looks now like maybe there's some evidence here that CO2 is rising because the temperature rises, that it's the other way around, that CO2 is not the dependent variable, it's the independent variable. It's temperature that's the dependent variable, or that the, it's, sorry, temperature is causing the CO2 to go up, not CO2 causing the temperature to go up. Now, the other thing that sort of helps me see through a lot of this is I know these people. I've been there. uh, I've seen these politicians. I've seen these people who run academic institutions. I've seen these people who run medical institutions. I've been on the inside of medicine. I have classmates who are doctors, and I know who these people are. And who they are are people. And what I mean by that is they have the same failings that all of the rest of us have. They have vanity, all of the seven deadly sins, gluttony, pride. Uh, they they will cheat, as all human beings will do at times to gain advantage. Um, they're not any more special than any of the rest of us. And as such, we should never deify them and never give them any sort of uh, street credibility just because of their position. They have to earn it, and they have to earn it on a daily basis. I don't care what you did 30 years ago. Uh, you could be corrupted today, and I want to be able to evaluate you by by how you present yourself day to day. Now, in an effort to get you to understand the scientific method and how things like this have been going on since the beginning of time, I always like to use the example of Joseph Lister, who lived from 1827 to 1912, he is considered the father of antiseptic surgery. And the story of Joseph Lister is he was a, a surgeon in England, and he understood that sterilizing the the equipment and using sterile technique, and he had this big protocol of how you sterilize your instruments, how you keep your hands clean, and you maintain sterile technique while you're performing an operation, he was able, through his procedures, to uh, decrease the infection rate from uh, 80%. It says here, those who emulated Lister's example in Munich gained astounding success with the death rate caused by infection after surgery dropping from 80% to almost zero. I mean, 
Do you hear what those numbers? So before Joseph Lester introduced his procedures of sterile technique, if you got an infection from a surgery, 80%, 8 in 10 of people died, okay? After implementing his sterile technique, that number went down to almost zero. So that even if you got an infection, you didn't die. Now, the English doctors, it says here, were among the last to accept the brilliance of Lister's methods, only winning them over when he was appointed professor of surgery in London's King College Hospital in 1877. By 1879, his findings had gained widespread acceptance around the globe, but it took him 12 long years before that happened. And it was because there was a resistance to change, which is a normal human fallibility. I do it right now. So I do a lot of hip replacements, okay? And I have my way of doing it that I've been doing for a long time, and it works really well for me, okay? I do what's called a modified posterior lateral approach to the hip. And years ago, they came out with a new method of doing hip replacements called the anterior approach. And the powers that be wanted to promote this uh, anterior approach to the hip. Um, I think there's always been this issue where there are doctors who only do joint replacements and many of them are amazing, but they all sort of believe that only they should be the ones doing the hip replacements. Now, in my opinion, in surgery, you need to have experience to be good at something And of course, I've been doing this for a long time now, and I know that my experience has made me a better surgeon, but I would argue I do a lot of different things. Hand, you know, joint replacements. I do sports medicine. I do, you know, trauma. I do just about everything. And I feel like the skills that I acquire and that I practice in each of those disciplines makes me better in the other disciplines. But there are people out there who, for example, just do one thing like joint replacement. And so those surgeons have always been working towards, uh, uh, ways of differentiating themselves from other community doctors out there. And one of the ways that they did this was they came out with this anterior approach to the hip. Now, what I'm sharing with you guys is my personal opinion, okay? I've been doing this long enough to know that there are amazing surgeons out there that do an anterior approach to the hip that think that's the best way to go, and I totally respect them uh, and and would tell them, you know, keep doing it that way. But when they came out with the anterior approach, I did not want to do it. It's like, now you're like taking me back to square one. Now I got to learn this new approach. It takes time to figure out the best way to put your retractors. It's hard to identify the tissues when you have this new way of doing something. It's just, it takes time, you know? And here I am. I have my way of doing it. I got it down. I don't want to do a new way. And I was resistant to it. But... I'm the type of person who I always want to be up with the times and I always want to be the best. I'm competitive that way. And so I started going and learning how to do the anterior approach to the hip. And I eventually did learn how to do it. But I know that feeling of just not wanting to change to this new way of doing things. Now, I've since gone back to doing my posterior lateral approach to the hip because I think it's a better way of doing it for a variety of different reasons. Uh, you have better angle to the to the femur. Um, if anything goes wrong, the posterior lateral approach can be extended. Whereas if you have an anterior approach to the hip and something goes wrong, you can't really extend that one. You have to make a second incision. There are a number of different way- reasons why I like mine. Uh, the most important is the actual disruption of tissue, in my opinion, is the least with the posterior lateral approach. I kind of digress there. My point is there are different opinions there. I'm trying to make the point that when people introduce change, 
there's a natural resistance from the others around it. And if you give people the power to tell the people that are trying to initiate change, if you give others the power to say, no, you're spreading misinformation, you're spreading disinformation. I need to protect society by taking your medical license away, Mr. Lister or Dr. Lister. Uh, you're spreading this misinformation about this sepsis. You're giving people false hope. You're creating a, a hazard. I mean, just imagine if they wouldn't allow you to share your opinions. And this idea that there's a justification for shutting down people who are so-called spreading misinformation is utterly ridiculous because the way it's always been done is ideas gain acceptance and credibility by open discussion in the marketplace of ideas. And if somebody's putting out silly ideas, it's easy to discredit them by using debate and by talking about the facts and by showing people data. It's never a good idea to just censor people who say something that you don't want to hear. That's a sheer, that is a surefire sign when, when, when I'm debating another person. If I can't engage that person in debate, in, in a debate and defeat them with the idea and the method I have to use is to censor them, that should be a telltale sign to everybody that I'm hiding something, that I don't have the ability to make my assertions. And so we should all be very much aware of this concept of misinformation. As soon as you hear somebody invoking the misinformation clause and that we had to censor based on it, your antenna should go up that something nefarious is going on. Now, the other thing I like to uh, show people is is the fallibility of people. And, and, you know, a lot of times becoming a doctor gives you a certain level of street cred. In fact, one of the reasons I thought about becoming a doctor, when I was a younger person, I had a reading disability. I've talked about it on this show. Nobody ever thought of me as the smart person. And I had... Um, I wouldn't say anxiety, but I, I definitely had some self-esteem issues around the fact that I wasn't a very smart person. I didn't feel very smart, and I was embarrassed by it. I wasn't very good at spelling, and the reason I wasn't good at spelling was sort of based on this reading disability, and uh, you know, I was embarrassed about it, and I thought that I wasn't a smart person. And so when I was young and thinking about what I wanted to be in this world, I thought to myself, you know, if I can become a doctor then people will just think I'm smart because I'm a doctor. And so if I misspell things, they, you know, it won't be as embarrassing. And that, you know, seems kind of funny at this point, but that actually is a thought process that I had when I was a younger person trying to decide to become a doctor. Now, becoming a doctor has given me a lot of street cred. When I walk into a room and people hear I'm a doctor, uh, I immediately get a certain level of credibility from the people around me just by virtue of the fact that I'm a, do I'm a doctor. And I'm here to tell you that you should not give me that special <laughs> credibility because there's nothing about that that makes me special other than at some point in my life, I was willing to put in the work and do the time and put in the effort to become a doctor. And that is something that you should take into account when you look at me is like that person, at least in some point in their life, uh, had the ability and the discipline to learn a lot of difficult information and go through the, you know, it's like a Navy SEAL, right? A Navy SEAL earns a certain level of credibility because they were able to go through Bud's training. And I think about that all the time. I, you know, I like to fancy myself a Navy SEAL, except I don't like to be uncomfortable 
And I'm afraid of stuff like swimming in the ocean where great white sharks are around and jumping out of planes and stuff like that. Other than that, I would be an amazing Navy SEAL. But, you know, there are obviously certain situations where we give people, we extend them a certain level of credibility uh, based on things that they have accomplished in the past, but it shouldn't be lifelong because Navy SEALs, although they have the ability to go through BUDS training, that doesn't give them exemption from having to earn credibility throughout the rest of their life. And I just want to share some of the people that I came across through my travels in medical school. Now, medical school was a very funny time for me. I, you know, as I've shared on this show many times, it took me five years before I finally got accepted to medical school. And when I finally was accepted, I put all my belongings in the back of my pickup truck and I drove to St. Louis University. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I'm going to be immersed with 155 of the greatest people on planet Earth. You know, that was what was in my head. And when I got there, <laughs> what I found was 155 regular people. And in fact, in many cases, I would say a lot of these people, me included probably, uh, were at our worst. And the reason was because we were under a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure in medical school. All of the kids, uh, not me, but most of the people that were there were used to, you know, getting A's on every test and, you know, doing well in their exams and being ranked very highly in their classes. And all of a sudden, you're in this crucible where everybody has that level of uh, competence. And, um, you know, there was a lot of pressure. And so I remember we had this guy in there. He got the nickname Goldfinger. I'm not going to share what his name was. But when you go and you examine a patient in the hospital, the very first exam you do is supposed to be very comprehensive. You do everything, including a rectal exam and all this kind of stuff. But on the subsequent visits, you know, the following days, you do a modified exam, which is usually heart, lungs, abdomen, and extremities. It's a very abbreviated exam. But Goldfinger didn't realize that. And so he kept doing the full exam on this patient. And every day he was giving this patient a rectal exam. <laughs> and uh, we walked into the, you know, our whole team was making rounds. So there's probably about 10 of us. And uh, we walk into the room and the patient gets up and he starts screaming, keep that guy away from me, Goldfinger, the guy with the bowling bag, don't let him near me anymore. And everybody immediately burst out laughing. And apparently he, when we were in medical school, people were buying their tools. He bought one of those leather bags that doctors have that looked like a bowling bag. And he was doing a rectal exam every single time on this patient. And it was because he didn't understand that, you know, you only do that on the first visit. And so it immediately spread through the school like wildfire that his name was Goldfinger. And he's probably still called that today. My point being is that doctors are just like anybody else. They have failings and uh, you need to independently think about everything in your life. I'm going to pick up more on this in uh, future shows because uh, it doesn't seem to be going away anytime fast. Uh, we'll catch you next time. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. I'm talking to you on America's Web Radio. Everybody have a great day, and we'll see you next time. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.